please note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We get... Yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Hello? Is this Scott Anderson? Speaking. Is this Brian? Yes, it is. How's it going? Fine. How are you? Good. Let me start by asking, what is it that you did on the game? Uh, I was the producer. And if you look at the credits, I was the mayor of Lego Island. Oh, nice. (laughs) Are those two things that went hand in hand, or did you have to go up for election or something? Yeah, there was uh, an election. Um, We all raised our little elbowless arms. (laughs) Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things Lego games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of Lego games, chat with early developers as well as seasoned studios, who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the Lego Group. This week's episode takes a look at arguably the first serious LEGO video game release, LEGO Island. Released on CD-ROM in late 1997, The Adventures on LEGO Island was first introduced at Toy Fair in March of 1997 in New York City. Well, it's time for the toy industry's biggest show of the entire year. This is not the world of Lego that you're used to. For the first time in Lego's 65-year history, Lego characters come to life with voices and personalities in the interactive CD-ROM game Adventures on Lego Island. What if you could change anything you wanted? You can in Lego Island, the new CD-ROM game. It's an entire Lego world where you chase a Lego villain, build and race Lego vehicles, and change everything from the landscape to people's attitudes. New Lego Island CD-ROM game. That was the Lego Island commercial that aired in the U.S. in 1997. And it had that, you know, signature kind of Seinfeld slap bass uh, thing going on there. It's kind of fun. It's an ad that features this younger kid, you know, maybe 10 or 11, and he's being teased by his older brother. Yeah. And he uses a mouse to take control of the situation, all in this spirit of Lego Island. So at this point, it's probably important to note that uh, neither Brian or myself are Lego employees. Uh, We are both commissioned to research the 25-year history of LEGO games. And as we dive deep into the vast world of LEGO Island, our focus will primarily be with first-hand accounts from those who created the game at Mindscape, the gaming licensing partner of the LEGO group, and not necessarily on accounts within the LEGO company during that specific time period. In doing so, we will not only examine the trivia and mechanics of LEGO Island itself, but assess its cultural impact and really try to understand this unique point in time where the LEGO group transitioned from the physical to the digital. 
Well, back in the 50s and 60s, LEGO was about building sculptures, static objects. Then came the wheel, then came LEGO Technic with functions so you could actually add movement to it. Then came Mindstorms with the sensor input, you know, sensor feedback, stuff like that, meaning that you could actually add behavior. But the world around us was becoming increasingly virtual. More and more things is happening in the virtual space. We need to be there. That was LEGO employee Tormita Skilson, who's been with the LEGO company since 1983 and is the head of the adult fan engagement at the LEGO group. This was from a conversation I had with Tormit back in 2008 about the importance of the LEGO group getting involved in digital gameplay. Um, Brian, you also talked to Tormit, I believe, and you talked to him about a very specific time frame, which was before LEGO Island. Uh, Tormit had a little bit to do with this idea of digitizing and doing games. And tell me a little bit about that and, and maybe some of the things he talked about with you. Yeah. So uh, back in, in the fall of 1995, Tormod was asked by corporate management to look into the children's software market. This specifically, they wanted him to identify and evaluate opportunities within this market. Um, and, and interestingly, it was a request that was driven by this uh, concern around the growing video game industry and how companies like Nintendo were eating up huge chunks of a child's free time. So, Brian, how did we get to this point? Um, help me a little bit with the background on the gaming industry and what kind of leads up here to 1995. Sure. Now, to understand what's going on in the game industry, you need to go back a little bit. So, there was something in 1983 called the video game crash. And what happened here was essentially Atari flooded the market with too many games and they couldn't sell, and it almost killed the entire game industry. Fast forward three years, and Nintendo enters the market with the Nintendo Entertainment System. They kind of trick uh, stores, retailers, into selling their system by calling it an entertainment system, not a game console. It includes a little robot, so they, th they basically are saying this is a toy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that takes off. It blows up. 1989, you have the Game Boy, which expands the market even further. So now you have portable gaming systems. 1990. You have the uh, Super Nintendo Entertainment System, which, which makes this, the gaming industry even bigger. So by 1995, you're entering what is considered by the game industry the fifth generation of consoles. And that brings in some massive players. Nintendo's already huge, but now you have PlayStation uh, with the Sony entering the market. And so it's becoming this big thing. A year later, Nintendo's going to come in with the Nintendo 64. Uh, so the world of, of console gaming is booming, as is the world of computer gaming, uh, where you have titles like uh, Warcraft, which is at, at the time a, a real-time strategy game. You have Dune 2. You have Maxis's popular line of sim games like uh, SimCity. And, and then you have titles like Myst, which are showing the popularity of explorative puzzle games. Yeah, so that's that's pretty amazing too because you are starting to see these games that are highly involved. Right. Uh, this idea that you know youth and and kids and you know us from the Atari generation or something is now going to do like deep dive gaming, and and I think that's pretty interesting because uh, you've got video games that are actually demanding a lot of time yeah. to be involved with, to be engaged with. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean the reality is everybody only has so much time. Uh, children only have so much time. So when they have their free time, they're going to play with toys or, or now they're going to, you know, watch TV or play video games. And video games are becoming a larger and larger part of what they do with their time. 
Um, and now the Lego group is already sort of playing around with the idea of video games and had been for a while. So you've got you've got things like Futura, which was this sort of R&D part of the Lego group. And they were looking at all kinds of things, uh, including virtual reality experiences and the idea of using CD-ROMs and maybe including those uh, with building sets and, and, and maybe creating digital versions of how you build. And of course, the Internet is taking off. So it's a really interesting, important time. Yeah, you interviewed uh, two former LEGO employees who worked with the R&D team, LEGO Futura, in Boston. Uh, There's Kitty O'Neill, who was hired as a kinetic sculptor right out of college in 1992, and then Michael Thompson, who was her boss. And and he had a degree in computer science. And one of the stories I love is he actually submitted an unsolicited application to the product development department at the LEGO group. I think my application ended with... Not only can software help contribute to Lego, but Lego can help contribute to software. So that was kind of my dream. So I started in 92. They were already doing stuff where they were using the computer to do something to the brick. I remember I was the first to present the internet at Lego. And, I, and it was all text back then. This was 94. It was, there was no web at that point. Not, not generally in use anyway. I presented this and nobody got it. But Kel came up and he was just, he was just completely, you know, putting his knuckles to his head and going, this is incredible, you know, this is going to change the future. So he really gets it. Before Lego had any software, we did a catalog with pictures of different Lego software boxes that we just made up. But we were trying to show them that you could have a whole line of software and that they would be for all the different age groups. And so we made up all these titles and descriptions, and it looked like a real catalog that you could buy. They thought it was really interesting, but the problem was that the company didn't know how to deal with software. They had no idea. They didn't have any kind of organization to deal with software. They wouldn't know how to develop it. You know, they had no idea. PC games were really popular, so it was just in the zeitgeist, you know. Games is going to be a big deal. I mean, people have been playing games on the computers for 10 years, but it it was really building, and it was becoming a big part of Toy Fair. We did in 93, I think. We did the very first CD-ROM that we produced, but not as a product, just as a concept. But it was basically a game. It was called Lego Town. And it was kind of cool because we did some of the first attempts at how do you how do you animate Lego figures? You know, can a parrot fly and will it move its wings, or or does you know does it fly with the wings stuck to its side and so forth? Man, I love these interviews about the pre-Lego games era. You know, um, these these phone session recordings were all done last year in the fall, right. and this was of course before you and I knew that any of this would be turned into a podcast or podcast snippets or conversations. And so it's funny you can actually hear your typing alongside in the background. But yeah, there's so much packed in here, Brian. Right? Like right, right. this idea that Lego Futura needed to sell Lego headquarters on the validity of software and video games. Um, I love that picture of Michael presenting the early internet to Kiel Christensen for the first time and, and just how excited he was. Um, this attempt that Lego Futura makes over and over again, it's between, what, uh, 93 and 95, yeah. and really trying to help the Lego group jump on the digital and video game bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, it, it's important to note also that it, it's uh, the, it's that same year, well, I guess in 1996, that another group was launched, a very important group, uh, the Strategic Product Unit Darwin, 
uh, was brought on and some of the people who are working on some of that stuff at uh, Futura moved over to Darwin. And Darwin's mandate was to, among other things, explore the possibility of video games that can recreate Lego toys in a digital form. Uh, so you have this it's sort of this in the air, you know, this idea that Lego bricks have to go digital in some sense and that toys and the Internet and everything is uh, is, is sort of going to take over. And then uh, Tormod is, is asked to do this report. So he hires a couple of people. They have a small group of researchers, basically, that put together uh, this report, which, by the way, is called Elvis. Uh, I think that's because... Video games had the company all shook up, which I love. I yeah, love that name. That's good. Uh, anyway, so this report, it, it, it takes basically over the fall of that year. Uh, they work on this report and they deliver it in the winter. And its findings are uh, really, I think, a, a wake-up call for the company because it's not just saying, hey – yeah, video games are important. Uh, the report stresses that entertaining the, the video game market was not an option. It was an absolute necessity. So on December 21st, 1995, there's this workshop held with Tormod and some other folks in which they present their findings through, uh, through a PowerPoint. And Tormod and his fellow researchers lay out what the opportunities are, what the different entry strategies are, and the best way to position Lego toys within the video game industry. Yeah, yeah. So, so the timeline is actually kind of unique in, in how it leads into Lego Island as a game that's supposed to, you know, come about. And, you know, before all this happens, someone had to greenlight and, and fully greenlight this idea that the Lego group was going to go into games. And, and why do you feel that was such a debate? I mean, why was that being discussed so long? I mean, if you look at, you know, video games, they've been around for so long, uh, even up to 1995, that you think that maybe the Lego group would have started earlier. Um, I mean, what what are your ideas on that, Brian? I think that the Lego Group as a toy company, as a company that had been around for a very long time and had always worked on the physical, uh, viewed digital creations with some suspicion, both because they saw the digital creation uh, taking away some of their market. But more importantly, I, I think like a lot of people back in that time period, you know, it, it was sort of uh, the comic books of its era. It was this idea that video games would rot your brain, you know. Uh, they weren't educational. They weren't healthy. It was just viewed as some sort of mindless time waster. And I think for the Lego group to really come to grips with that, they first needed this Elvis research project. But also – we come to find maybe decades before they really got a grasp on on like this is important and this is how we do it and this is how these things can coexist. Yeah, yeah. I also think the other thing that plays into this is is the fact that there was a whole group uh, within the Lego company that felt like if you were to force you know, a story upon kids and have them do something that was task or narrative driven in in you know video game, that would take away the game and play experience per se. You know. Like like you would be forced to play a certain you know regiment of a game instead of just you know mixing all the genres together uh, you know like that is so common when you're a kid and you just mix everything up. Plus, I don't know if they had quite the handle on early youth that was starting to decline. Right? I mean that that was the real Nintendo threat, I believe. Um, you you'd probably forget the plastic brick quite easily during that time. You know, video games themselves, people who make video games and people who have been in the industry for decades have have really struggled with that balance between a crafted experience that is more akin to something like, say, a movie or a book 
and the idea of creating a toy-like experience that is more akin to giving a kid a sandbox to play in or a toy box to kind of go through and play around with. So, you know, the, the, the fact that the Lego group, which doesn't have any experience creating video games at the time, steps into this and looks at it and instantly seemingly identifies an issue that video games and video game makers have long struggled with, I think is is very telling and and frankly is impressive. Absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's take a little break here. Um, before Jet Set Radio, uh, Crazy Taxi, and uh, Grand Theft Auto, Lego Island was the first to have an interactive radio station. Let's uh, let's take a listen here. In your home or in your car, you are never really far from L E. G-O Radio. Yes, L-E-G-O Radio. If you're not listening to L-E-G-O, then chances are you're not listening to a radio. You know the Lego Island is my kind of town. Think I'm gonna build a bridge today. I think I'm gonna build it in a brand new way. Um, let's take a look at the beginning, how it all started. Uh, Brian, tell me a little bit about the setting and how did Lego Island come about? You know, it's really fascinating, uh, especially when you sort of lay it over the context of what's going on in the world in terms of video games and toys, and then what's going on at the Lego group. So in the mid-90s, there's this California education software company called Mindscape. And so Mindscape, we could do a whole thing on Mindscape. Yeah. They have a fascinating sort of turbulent history that started in 83 by a guy who worked Scholastic, but they they had uh, this history of publishing video games, uh, but they went through a lot of ownership changes, and and so during this time period, they decided they wanted to focus a bit more on different types of video games. So one of their department heads started looking at who they might be able to team up with in the toy industry. Yeah. So they see this as another avenue for making money. And after doing some research on big toy companies, they, of course, settle on one of the biggest, uh, the Lego company, and decided that's, that, that's the approach. That's the company they want to go after. So they give this project this sort of pitch that they want to come up with to a guy who goes on to become Lego Island's creative director. Uh, his name is Wes Jenkins, and, and the people who knew him described him as this amazingly creative person, this sort of fountain of ideas and enthusiasm at the company. Mm -hmm. So he goes and he grabs another guy named Paul Melmid, who would then become Lego Island's education and research director. And the two of them sit down and come up with this amazing pitch for a game featuring Lego Town, uh, you know, the uh, after the Lego Town set. And they go to the New York Toy Fair in February of 1995 and pitch their hearts out to the Lego company. Yeah, yeah. And the timeline here is real interesting, right, Brian? Because, of course, in February of 1995, uh, they're there and they're pitching to the Lego group. And, and how does that go? What happens? I mean, how do they react? And obviously, this seems to gel and fuse kind of perfectly with this attempt they had uh, with Lego Futura and Tormut and those people wanting to actually, you know, have a video game. Yeah, you look at this pitch that, that seems like it went really well and you sort of take that time period, which is uh, February 95 and then drop it into the world of the Lego brick and going mm -hmm. back a little bit to what we talked about a little earlier in this discussion. Remember that the, the Elvis Research Project kicks off in 95. So February 95, the Lego group has this interesting idea pitched to them mm -hmm. and we know they'd, that they'd already been thinking about video games because of Futura. And then we know in the fall, so let's say September of 95, mm -hmm. Tormod is asked by the folks at the Lego group, the higher-ups at the company, uh, to have a look at video games. 
So one could assume that probably these three things line up very neatly. Yeah. So you've got you've got Tormund doing this research. He delivers his report to the folks at the Lego Group in December of '95, where he basically says it's not an option. We need to get into video games. And then lo and behold, in January of '96, just a month later, Mindscape and the Lego Group formally announce a partnership to develop a CD-ROM game based on the town play theme that would allow children to live and play in this virtual Lego world. Yeah, so I guess it's important to realize, too, that this pitch that took place at Toy Fair, you know, Torment wasn't there, right? So it's not like, you know, Mindscape or Wes Jenkins or Paul are pitching to Torment directly, but they're they're pitching to someone within the Lego group, I'd imagine, right? So once once they get this approval, what were the first steps in creating this game? Obviously, it's it's a really big topic to say it's a town play theme, you know? What what is it that the game turns into and how does that happen? What what are some of the next steps here, Brian? Right. So, you know, the nature of Lego Play is that it's very open. You could do almost anything with it. So after they get the green light, they start forming this big team. And it seems like Wes and Paul are two of uh, sort of the core people who really come up with a lot of the originating ideas for the game. One of the things that's really fascinating is that Paul, who has a background in psychology, came up with this idea early on that the game could, on some deeper level, explore Dr. Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we could talk about that a little later, but it's this theory that holds that human intelligence is actually broken down into what was originally seven uh, different abilities. So logic, linguistics, interpersonal skills, music, things like that. So the idea that Paul had was to allow children to become sort of characters that each represented these different forms of intelligence. And then they would explore this Lego world through these different personal lenses. Mm -hmm. So you have, on the one hand, Wes, uh, who is creating this world, this Lego world. But you also have Paul, Mm -hmm. who uh, comes up with this really interesting grounded in education approach to how these characters would be designed. Yeah, I think that's really important, too, because obviously that's a huge interest that the LEGO group has, right? Uh, They're interested in not just creating a game that you play once and then you're done with, but they wanted to create the same experience digitally that they did physically. So this idea that there's an educational tie-in, that there's different skills involved in actually playing the game and using the same skill set you do in physical building, uh, you could use digitally. Uh, This was a huge breakthrough, I think, or at least getting on the good side of the Lego group, I would say, because the game no longer felt like completely disassociated with with the company or the Lego Play experience. Um, It was actually fused very nicely in this little place. So when you look at the team... Uh, How did this work? Uh, How did they do this? I mean, it sounds very philosophical, very lofty ideas. Uh, Now you have to actually make a game and you're also in the mid 90s, right? So technology is kind of limited. Yeah, no. So they uh, they built up uh, actually quite a huge team. So Wes Jenkins uh, uh, was obviously on the team. Um, and there were other people like a senior producer, Scott Anderson, uh, director of development, Dennis Goodrow, uh, project manager, Mary Collins, and uh, the lead 3D artist, Dave Patch. Um, and so this, this group of uh, sort of leaders got together and decided early on that instead of creating what they viewed to be a traditional video game, they wanted to create something that, that uh, I think it was Wes, uh, maybe, maybe Scott, some, one of them told me or I read that what they wanted was to create something that was more like a toy that happened to have gaming features. 
Uh, so what that means is they didn't want it to be this sort of directed experience, and we talked about this earlier. Uh, instead, what they wanted was uh, to offer children this sort of open field in which uh, they could play and create their own experiences. Uh, and in doing this, you know, it, that's a bigger challenge because not only are you talking about you know the difficulties of engineering and tech- technology, but you have to just create a lot of assets to do this. So over time, I'm told the team that worked on this game ended up growing to uh, more than 100 people, which is tremendous. Scott joined Mindscape to work on the Lego Island game. And he, a real good friend of his that he knew through college and other stuff, Dennis Goodrow, where they were both working there and they were looking for programmers. And Scott called me and I was ready for a change. So I went to uh, Mindscape, which is in my hometown. So that was Jim Brown. Uh, he's from Nevada, California, where Mindscape was located at the time. And uh, Brian, I believe he was one of the lead programmers uh, listed at the end of the credits of the game as programming wizard and mm-hmm. the godfather of code. Yeah. But one of the real gems we actually have is this behind-the-scenes VHS tape where Scott Anderson walks the floor at Mindscape. Um, and it's, it's this wonderful time capsule of that era where he kind of introduces the large Lego Island team and shows off the game. I'm Scott Anderson, and I'm the producer of the LEGO project, Adventures on LEGO Island. We'd like to show you around. We've got some programmers here and some artists here, and like to show you what they're doing. Hi, come on in. This is our graphics room here. I'm talking with Jeff Walkup. He's working on the phoneme generator. There seems to be a crowd of people over here working uh, uh, very intently. I can see they've all got a Lego in their hands. So um, that's, that's a good start room. This is what they do all day long, and they actually get paid to do that. So here we are in the Lego art room, where we put together a full-scale model of Lego Island. This has really helped us to see a little bit more about what we're doing on the game. Um, We use it for focus testing for the kids, we use it for photographs, and of course for fun and therapy for the art crew. Um, This has given us a lot of ideas about what to do on LEGO Island and helps contribute to the magic here on LEGO Island. I'm Jim Brown. I'm going to take you on a little cruise around LEGO Island. Notice the details will increase. You can look at the top of this flat hill here. We have some plants, and as we move closer, You'll be able to gradually discern several different trees, different types of trees, and the detail improves as we get closer and closer, and we can see all the the nice specular highlighting that uh, Direct3D will do for us. This is the point where um, graphics accelerators were just starting to come into play. So we were actually targeting something that would run on a machine without a graphics accelerator, but would be able to take advantage of graphics accelerators if they were available. So Jim Brown here talking about the difficulty of the graphics, and it's important to keep in mind that Mindscape is essentially developing Lego Island for kids who are probably using their parents' old PCs. And so these really basic computer specs had to be kept in mind. Right. So the bar's pretty low here, technically. And yet, from the interviews you conducted, Brian, with Scott, Dennis, and Jim, 
it's clear that they were still all eager to pursue this very ambitious world creation. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be said about the collaborative process of creating this game because it sounds like early on the game was, uh, while it had these interesting aspects to it, they still were creating sort of this more, maybe slightly more linear experience and, and didn't have a lot of building or vehicles. The, the Lego group came back and said, look, you need to have more building because building is a big part, obviously, of, of what the company does. But also vehicles are a big part of what they do. So uh, they, they asked the developers to start focusing on this building aspect, uh, which would, in theory, allow kids to build these different vehicles and then explore the island from a first-person perspective. They also had this fascinating story-driven experience that wasn't really required, but that if you wanted to kind of feel like you were playing a game that had a story, you could dig into that. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I really do love the story here. It, it's so great. So, so basically what would happen is if the player had already built a police helicopter and if the player happened to be playing as Pepperoni, uh, which was one of several of many of the characters in the game you can play as, it kicks off this sort of storyline that has Pepperoni uh, essentially delivering this pizza to a character named the Brickster who's in jail. And then the Brickster uses that pizza to somehow escape from the jail and then he starts going all over the island to basically causing destruction. And it's up to the player to stop him. The game actually, uh, another sort of amazing thing for a game of this time period to do, it, it actually had two different endings. One showing essentially the Brickster winning and the other showing uh, Pepperoni winning. Yeah, great alternative ending. You know, if the, if the Brickster wins, it basically sounds like this. You know, the camera's flying through around the island and we see bricks and set pieces scattered everywhere. And yeah, the Brickster stands on a classic red two by four brick. It's mine, all mine. <laughs> Maniacal laughter. All mine. Lightning strikes in the background. Yeah, and then the camera pulls back out of the scene through the clouds and in the distance you still hear Lego Island mourning all these distant cries. It's, it's pretty dramatic. But then, of course, it kind of flips to the infomaniac yeah. telling us that everything's going to be okay and you can play it over again. And uh, it's, it's kind of a fun alternative to the classical happy ending. Well, it's not as bad as it looks. Uh, well, maybe it is. No, actually, you can just start again or come back later when you want to. You'll be able to reconstruct. And uh, going back to that original concept, importantly, uh, the game had these five playable characters, each of which aligned with a different type of intelligence. <laughs> it's a very subtle thing. Uh, and their names are amazing, by the way. I love all of their names. But uh, in the instruction manual, I think they kind of break it down for you. You've got Mama Bricolini, whose intelligence is musical. Uh, then you have Pepper Roni, who is uh, mathematical. And then you have Papa Bricolini, who is a sort of uh, – his, his intelligence is uh, coordination. Uh, then you have Nick Brick, whose intelligence is spatial, and Laura Brick, whose interpersonal is, is her intelligence. And then uh, I guess they didn't want to have too many playable characters, so they also added uh, the final two types of intelligence to two non-playable characters, one being the Brickster – uh, and the other being the infomaniac, and the infomaniac is a sort of like your guide to this uh, to this world. Uh, who, by the way, uh, Wes Jenkins, I think, sort of denied that it was deliberate, 
But if you put the infomaniac up against a picture of Wes Jenkins, you would think that that's exactly how they designed him to look, um, which is great. Yeah. But yeah, so that's sort of how they injected these intelligences into the game. Yeah, and to me too, it's one it's one of those interesting things where I think if you wouldn't tell me those things, I might not pick up on him. Yeah. I don't feel like these are extremely overt things. Um, but how long did it take Mindscape to to create the game? Uh, it sounds all very ambitious, you know, different intelligences, a whole world. I think they had up to 35 characters too. So we've got so many different um, things that we're trying to do here and build here. Uh, how long did it take them? What's, how's Mindscape going about creating this game? Yeah, it's a lot of work. And one of the reasons it took so long, though, was because they had decided that they wanted to create essentially their own sort of platform upon which this game was going to be programmed and built. And the reason they did that was because Mindscape, uh, the developer, hadn't just landed a deal for Lego Island. It had actually landed this sort of contract that had built into it the ability for for this studio to make a number of sequels. So the first game was meant to be Lego Island, obviously. Uh, and then the second game, which uh, the, the team had already started doing some work on and had actually done some prototyping on, was this game called Beneath the Fantasy, as in fantasy. Uh, another great pun, of course. And that was a game that was going to take place underwater and it was going to have all these kind of uh, sort of creatures and experiences. And it was meant to be this game that was more about sort of exploring the importance of uh, ecology and environmentalism from a kind of educational perspective. So in their mind, in, in Mindscape's mind, the Lego Island was supposed to be the first immersive 3D game designed specifically for children and sort of the beginning of a series of important, fun 3D games for kids that also had sort of a, an educational edge to them. So, you know, we, we, we talk about the experience of playing the game uh, and when they started developing, I think one of the things that they really focused on was the ability to move around. So Pepperoni is this fan favorite. He, he gets to sort of explore, obviously, in the vehicles he builds, but also on his skateboard, uh, w- which he can use to kind of ride around on the island. Um, and then as development of the game goes on, they began to add more vehicles uh, that you could you can build as one of these characters. They also took some things out. So it wasn't always about adding features. So for instance, one of the early versions of the game actually has uh, has ropes in it. But everybody who's a fan of Lego bricks knows you you know uh, you, you don't really have Lego ropes. Those things don't exist. So they had to remove that and, and things like it. Uh, from the game. Uh, but yeah, it was it was essentially this two-year journey uh, to, to answer your question. Wes and I and his wife, uh, Kyle, helped to build Lego Island. Senior producer Scott Anderson again here. So once we kind of had it mapped out, we built a copy of it in a big room at Mindscape. And uh, with, it was Lego size, so we had little Lego characters all around, and we brought kids in to play with the Legos, and we would, by watching how they played, we would get ideas for what to put into the game. Um, when we watched the kids playing on our giant Lego island, we saw that the girls were more interested in building the island 
So they were interested in putting different kinds of trees on the island, things like that. And whereas the boys were much more interested in the racing part of it, the girls were more interested in the, and, and this wasn't universally true, but just one of the things that we noted. So we made it so that you could go to the island and change everything. You could make the island your custom island. You could customize the sky and you could customize the trees and the color scheme and everything. So that turned out hopefully to have gotten us a lot more girls playing the game than otherwise would have happened. It's such a smart idea um, when you think about uh, development ideas. True. So the play testing that they did, um, you know, went on throughout the process of, of creating the game yeah. because they wanted to make sure that kids were getting the experience they expected from the video experience that they expected from the toy experience. So they really wanted that 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 one-to-one to exist. Um, there were also a lot of discussions that maybe don't happen these days uh, in terms of Lego games because simply there wasn't a Lego game to look at. So not only did they have to create a game, but they also had to figure out all these sort of philosophical things about Lego bricks and minifigures. Uh, uh, Scott, I think it was Scott, told me that they would have these these meetings that they called Yes Meetings, where basically everybody would get together and no matter what the idea was, no matter how crazy or impossible it seemed, you weren't allowed to say, no, that's a bad idea. You just had to agree with them and say yes and they would then go home and sleep on it on the idea, and the next day would come back and try to sort of maybe bring that down to reality a bit. But fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is. It's this inclusive think tank kind of culture, you know, that really allows teams to offer up ideas and suggestions. Yeah. Um, when is Lego Island released, and uh, how does that go? Yeah, so it's it's sort of unfortunately a tragedy. Uh, not the game. The game's great. Uh, game comes out. Lego Island was released on September twenty sixth, nineteen ninety seven. Unfortunately, according to everybody we spoke to, the day before the game came out, Mindscape ended up firing everybody on the team, or just about everybody on the team. When the game came out, we knew that it was going to be big. We had a terrific program in place for bonuses for the team. And when the game came out, rather than pay off the uh, the people who worked on it, I mean, they sold like a lot of copies in the first day. And so they owed us royalties. They owed us a lot of bonuses. And they decided that they would fold the company rather than pay us. So they fired the whole team. And then they folded the company. Um, I can't even imagine, you know, putting two years of all of that time, all that excitement into this game. Yeah. Starting work on the next game and then having the rug pulled out from under you like that. Yeah, terrible. So in the game industry, this still exists today. A lot of times built into a contract of someone who works on a game is that they get a share of uh, some of the profits. They get bonuses based on how well the game sells. And according to Wes and a couple other people we spoke to, they believe that the company did not want to have to pay out those bonuses, so they fired everybody before it started selling. Uh, Absolutely terrible. And uh, the end result is that that team was done away with, and essentially, for at least a brief period of time, Lego Island was the one and only game in that franchise. It wasn't a franchise, it was a single game, and Mindscape would not go on to make any of the other games. So, Brian, how, how did the game do? How did Lego Island do when it was put on the shelves, when it yeah. was ready to be sold? I mean, how, how did Lego Island perform in the market? So, uh, it, it did super well. That's a short answer. 
So the longer answer is you have to remember that this is a game that came out in the fall of 1997. So when you look at the year's sales for 1997, it's only getting a few of those months. So despite that, uh, it ends up being the 11th best selling computer game of the year, selling about 325,000 copies and earning $12 million. Uh, The next year, uh, where it had a full year of sales, it ended up selling 400,000 copies. So it outsells its first year. Um, not only was this game doing gangbusters, it, it essentially revived Mindscape. So Mindscape's total sales, not just sales of Lego Island, but total sales for 97 jumped up 70% compared to the previous year, thanks mostly to Lego Island. Yeah, so amazing performance in 1997. And when you look at some of the games that were released that same year, you had like Final Fantasy VII, you had X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, GoldenEye, Tomb Raider 2, Quake 2, Gran Turismo. There are so many games out there that they were kind of competing with, obviously in different segments, not exactly PC, CD-ROM games, so forth and so on, but still a pretty amazing lineup, I would say. And so when you have that kind of success, and obviously they laid off you know, most of their team, what was Mindscape planning on doing, or what was, what was the future to look like for them, or, or how would they use that momentum? What, what was done here by Mindscape? Yeah, I mean, again, this sort of stresses the tragic elements of this story. It's a fantastic game. It paves the way for the future successes of, I think, a lot of LEGO games down the line. But in the short term, it wasn't so great for Mindscape. Uh, So uh, the initial plan was for Mindscape to make a slew of follow-ups to LEGO Island. But the LEGO group, uh, I I get a sense, unhappy with the way Mindscape was treating its employees, instead cut a deal to essentially rescind the licensing rights to the company. And Mindscape was left with the profits from the game, but no ability to make a future LEGO Island. Uh, And and keep in mind, this is Mindscape uh, acting as a a contractor. So this isn't, you know, really on, I think, the Lego group. So it wasn't until 2001 that the game actually ends up getting a sequel, uh, Lego Island 2, which was subtitled The Brickster's Revenge. Uh, But that game was actually developed by a studio called Silicon Dreams. And Silicon Dreams also went on to make a third Lego Island game called Island Extreme Stunts, which came out in 2002. So you have these spinoffs that come, and they're not necessarily related maybe to Lego Island? Or or how would you explain that? What were those games like, Brian? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's, uh, they were fine. They were fine games, but the reality is they didn't have that same, you know, feel that that original game had. They weren't, uh, while Silicon Dreams were very aware of the original Lego Island, uh, they were also very aware of uh, Beneath the Fantasy, they Silicon Dreams instead decided to start from scratch when they made Lego Island 2. And is that basically like a like a rehash of Lego Island just with better graphics? I mean, the storyline sounds the same. I think there's more building going on, but yeah. the storyline's very similar. In fact, the Brickster, I believe, uses a pizza to escape again, leading me to wonder why Pepperoni hasn't figured this out yet because <laughs> he keeps, exactly. keeps delivering these pizzas. Uh, Island Extreme Stunts actually drops the Lego Island name. So now it's just Island Extreme Stunts. It is a direct sequel. Uh, this one is also developed by uh, Silicon Dreams. In this case, though, uh, it is not only published by Lego Interactive, but it is co-published by Electronic Arts. 
Um, and it's uh, essentially the final Lego Island. Like you said, it's the same thing over and over again. Basically, how long can we roll with this idea? Which is kind of the downfall of any game that tries to you know, put out sequels, I would say, and doesn't create something new and just wants to piggyback off what was done, you know? Yeah, and, and you know, this suffers also from the fact that you have this change in development studios. Um, but, you know, I think it speaks to the power of the original game of Lego Island yeah. that there are so many people out there to this day who absolutely adore this game and, and don't just talk about it, but do something about how much they love this game. That the LEGO group has a large fan base covering all age groups is a well-established fact by now. And it's no surprise that LEGO Games has a similar following. Uh, There's the LEGO gaming community, you know, Rock Raiders United, and a simple LEGO video game title search in Google or YouTube will pull up, uh, you know, like a treasure trove of materials. So when searching for LEGO Island, you'll find videos of gameplay, walkthroughs to entire, like, mini-docs with found VHS tapes and phone interviews. Uh, There's podcasts like, you know, Retro Reset and Memory Card. They, they talk about LEGO Island, uh, websites with software patches to fix bugs in the original game, and even swap a higher quality version of the soundtrack into LEGO Island. So there's definitely no shortage of uh, LEGO Island super fans out there. And one such super fan, researcher, archiver, and collector is uh, Ben Davies. I had played LEGO Island as a kid, but my interest in it really probably goes back to 2013. I pulled out of storage, I played through it for nostalgia's sake, and I just realized that, hey, this is a really charming game. I'm getting all this, uh, the humor and little references that I didn't get the first time playing through the game. Flash forward a few years, and I finally got the time to do that, and so I ended up traveling and speaking to all the devs and working on acquiring basically the lost materials from the game, which have gone off to who knows where over the 20-odd years since its release. Do you, do you feel that other people feel the same way in terms of, uh, you know, well, the, the, so the LEGO group has this breadth of games that were released uh, that now span 25 years. So do you think that LEGO Island stands out for everybody that way, or are you sort of unique in your love of that game? Those who played it originally, they still have a sort of a very fond association with LEGO Island I mean, well, gameplay-wise, it's sort of, <laughs> it hasn't aged the best. Um, I mean, in terms of writing, voice acting, music, it's it's still definitely one of, like, the most well-received LEGO games in that regard. Well, knock me over and call me deconstructed. If it isn't Pepper, the dude with the food. But where's, where's Mama? Where's... Papa, where's Laura and Nick and the racing and the jet skiing and the building and flying and watching and driving and having fun? Project Island needs your help, programmers, modelers, artists, writers, voice actors, and more. If you have a skill in any of these, by all means, join our Discord or take a look at our website and you might just land yourself a spot to help create Project Island. What you just heard was an excerpt from a recruitment trailer for Floris Tonin's Project Island. So, Flores, when did you start recreating Lego Island? When I personally started was like a few years back when it started not as a team project yet. Okay. Uh, But I think we went public on this on the 20th anniversary of the game, which was, I think, around two years ago. And when, when you went public, how many people were working on it then? 
When we went public, I think not a lot. I think about 12 or so. And how many people are working on it today? Uh, I think officially in our server, we have about 50 people. They're not all contributing like actively, but everyone kind of contributes a brick and uh, does a little bit. You're building it brick by brick. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what? So what? Uh, do you have any sense? Like, when do you think you'll be done with this? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a hard question. Uh, we're working on this kind of demo right now, and it's going pretty well. Um, but it kind of depends on how far we want to take this and uh, yeah, how, how much we can do. Um, we're all kind of working in our free time, so it's all really dependent on that. But uh, So uh, you, you probably know this, but the original game, it had a team of more than 100, and <laughs> yeah. it took them more than two years. So... And obviously, this was a team of people who were used to working with each other and had a lot of history. Do you feel like it's achievable to get the entire game done? Or is that not even your goal? Yeah, it's it's a lot of working together. And it's it's not easy, but I think it's really redeeming to kind of do this. And we are growing as we are just progressing as well. New people that are interested in seeing this project. So that also really helps out a lot. I think the end goal is definitely to have a, a final game that people can play and enjoy and kind of get this nostalgia back from the old games. Like, what was it about this game that stuck with you? Why is it that this is the game you decided to recreate and not some other? What resonates with me is kind of that it's kind of similar to the games I like now, because what I really appreciate in games is kind of this open world, this relaxed feel, um, having this kind of feeling that Lego Island gave. I don't think I have played another game which has done that really what is that feeling tell me a little bit about that i want to hear it because i don't think we could ever imagine what that is like to play it in a in a time where you say oh my gosh this is everything i dream of at night when i go to bed as an eight-year-old you know what i mean tell me a little bit about that like what is that feeling um i think it's quite a wonderful feeling because Especially when you're young, you just have the feeling that you can do anything. Um, And I think that's just really special that you just go into this world with all these Lego people. And, you know, you can just be there and be a part of it. And I think that's just really, really cool. I felt like there was quite a lot of freedom. Um, I think what I would like right now is to kind of have that even more. Um, Because I think it, it really just comes back to the essentials of play Um, because playing you kind of just try things out Uh, there's no objective really because it's all up to what you decide yourself in a way lego island was what the lego group always wanted out of a video game Um, i feel like they wanted this sandbox exploration they wanted properly animated minifigs they wanted the Lego brick to be represented properly. They wanted humor and wit. And, and even this narrative, this story-driven gameplay as a viable extension to physical play with the Lego brick. Um, the Lego group now seem to have clear answers to questions like, can Lego games deliver a digital experience? And of course, can the Lego company make their money back on an investment like this? Um, and I think both questions were answered with an affirmative yes. Uh, You know, considering this Mindscape residual buyout and some of the things that took place there, uh, but that resounding yes as an answer here is strong, and I feel like the LEGO group was definitely now in the video game space as a real player. 
But at the same time, I feel like the LEGO group could have learned some valuable lessons early on uh, when it came to their collaboration involvement with Mindscape. Um, Although the LEGO group was updated and involved creatively, paying attention to a lot of the emotional, uh, educational aspects of the game as it related to kids, I feel like they were maybe a little bit lackadaisical when it came to the ownership rights and residuals and dealing with Mindscape as a gaming company. And maybe the problem is that the LEGO group is just too nice. Um, you know, in researching some of the projects moving forward, uh, we see the LEGO group making similar mistakes of not really securing a stronghold on some of the games they were involved with uh, during these final release phases. And somehow they seem to lose their grip, I think, a little bit on what becomes a real valuable asset. This reminds me a lot of what happened with Gazillion and uh, LEGO Universe back in 2011. But regardless of, of their struggles with Mindscape, it's clear in 1995 that the LEGO group was all in when it came to gaming. And uh, LEGO Island was treated like a serious project and they weren't afraid to do it right. So to me, it's, it's all pretty positive when it comes to LEGO Island. Um, Brian, what, what's your takeaway? I think you bring up some really interesting points, Ethan, especially the points you raise about the sort of seeming similarities between Mindscape and the Lego group and Gazillion and the Lego group. But, you know, in general, uh, I, I think that Lego Island, a game that was made, what, 23, 24 years ago, is this sort of fascinating game that has an equally fascinating development history. Here's this game, really the first game made with the LEGO group as a partner that maybe even without realizing it creates and captures some of the fundamental principles of a successful LEGO game. And and it's an open world game. Uh, it also has these great sort of uh, dad jokes and silly humor, which I personally love. And, and it even features a host of playable minifigures. Uh, and these are sort of the core elements that we we really see come to light uh, in a Lego game in 2005 when Traveler's Tale takes these elements and makes them its own uh, when they released Lego Star Wars, the video game. It was Travelers that then ran with that approach and evolved it and polished it and perfected it until it became not just the de facto way to make a massively successful Lego game, but in some ways the best approach to making a family-friendly adventure game. And all of that, I think, goes back to this team at Mindscape, who had what was basically this clean slate to start working with. I love that this was the team that was interested not just in establishing the rules of play for a LEGO game, but also helping to define what it was to be a LEGO toy in the digital world. And that the same group also worried over things like how they could inject some form of educational values in their games. In this case, through these forms of uh, intelligence that, that I talked about earlier. I think that's even more stunning. You know, it, it's an important element of what makes Lego play, Lego play. And for them to bring that over to video games is so telling. You, you take all of that and you add to it the fact that this group would hold regular think sessions on sort of the, the deeper philosophical meanings of Lego toys and digital toys and, and play in general. And, and you have what is surely one of the most impactful, most important video games in the Lego group's history. Other titles would go on to make more money or maybe move more copies or grab more attention, but I think it would be hard to argue that any game would ever be as impactful across the 25-year history of LEGO games as its first.
Bits and Bricks is made possible by Lego Games. Our producer is Ronnie Scherer. Your hosts are Ethan Vincent and Brian Crescente. Episode producing and editing by Ethan Vincent. Writing by Brian Crescente. Original music, sound design, and mixing by Peter Primer. Additional music provided by tracks from the Lego Island game and Henrik Lindstrand from the award-winning game Lego Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade today. We'd like to thank our participants, Katie O'Neill, Michael Thompson, Scott Anderson, Jim Brown, Tormit Uskilson, Ben Davies, and Flores Tonin. We'd like to acknowledge the entire LEGO Games team, as well as the great folks at the LEGO Idea House for their support. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks.